0: This podcast is brought to you by Belong, winner of Money Magazine's Best Value NBN Plan for the second year running.
1: Hi, and welcome back to Property Unpacked, the podcast that unpacks the hot topics of property and explores how they affect you. I'm Adrian Lowe. In this episode, we're looking at a relatively new concept, rent with the option to buy. It's begun in one city and could be headed to one near you soon. Then we examine the effects of the federal budget measures for the property sector. Getting into the property market at the moment is feeling near impossible for a lot of Australians and it's causing some buyers to rush their purchase and nab what they can before they know if they even like the neighbourhood or community. One option that's emerged is rent with the option to buy certainly different to how the market usually works. It's being offered by Assemble Communities. And to explain, Managing Director Chris Daff joins us now. Chris, thanks for chatting to us today.
0: Thanks for having me, Adrian.
1: So tell me, what does rent with the option to buy
0: mean? Um, so what it means, and I guess maybe I'll start with a little bit of background, but what we did about four or five years ago was sort of have a look at what are some of the barriers to home ownership in Australia and then how we might be able to develop some fair housing models that assist people to sort of overcome those barriers. And what we did is we did a lot of work with ANZ at the time. One of the biggest barriers was the ability to save for a deposit. So we did some work with ANZ and said, well, how long would it take someone, assuming they don't have much money in the bank today, to save enough money to – have a down payment for a home and be able to qualify for a mortgage etc and about seven years was a period of time that we identified and had worked through with them the other issue that they're facing is a market that might be moving away from them at the um, same time so providing certainty as to a sort of purchase price for the property over that seven year period was another element that we're trying to solve for so what we did is we said to people we'll give you seven years so two years of construction plus a five-year leasing period then we you can sort of save towards a deposit and we'll support you with financial coaching and some other services during that period. And then we'll pre-agree today a price for which you can buy your home for at the end of the seven-year period. So, but you don't have to, you know, you've got the option to purchase it, you're not obliged to at the time. So, that was really about designing a model which took market volatility away from our purchases and we said, we'll house that for you. So, we'll take all the downside risk, you know, if the market does better. Good for you. You know, you've pre-agreed a price you can buy it for and any additional equity that's been built up in the property over that period is to your benefit.
1: Okay. You mentioned there, you know, this is a period of like seven years that might be the savings gap. I mean, in the seven years that we've just had, I mean, let's use Melbourne as an example. The median house price has gone from around the $600,000 mark to threatening to smash through $1 million. So there's been, as you say, a big shift in the market, and people probably are looking for some degree of security, which I guess is what you're saying that you kind of offer.
0: Yeah, yeah. So that, that's a good example. Over that that seven year period, the market's gone up sort of on average forty to forty five percent. So you know, if that occurred again, and you know, we're not saying whether it sort of will or it won't, a buyer in an assemble project would have over thirty percent equity you know and the property at the point in which they chose to purchase from us so so the price that they pay would be sort of 30 percent below market value at that time and that all sort of sounds a bit speculative but the main thing for us is saying we like that because that means people are more likely to be able to afford to buy their home and we sort of done our job to help get them into home ownership but it's really about saying you know is it realistic for someone who's on middle income to be able to keep plugging away and saving where they say well Seven years ago, when I started saving, I only had to save sixty thousand dollars for a ten percent down payment. You know, now, all of a sudden, I've got to do a hundred thousand dollars. So, I wasn't ever really working towards that goal. So, it's just sort of feels like you know, the market just keeps moving away from me. So, yeah, our model really does solve for that and saying, well, you know, you've got a fair period of time to work away, um, you know, to deposit. And you know what that sort of that end goal is. So the thing that's more flexible, I guess, about our our offer is that you can leave. You know, after you know, when you've moved in, you can leave after the first twelve months, two years, three years, and get your bond back and and sort of move on. You know, if your circumstances change during the five year rental period, you've got the ability to sublease your apartment for for up to two years. So you know, if you get a great job offer in you know, in Sydney or, or somewhere else and we don't want you to miss out on that opportunity so you can sort of go and do that for a couple of years and, you know, and then move back to our building afterwards. So, Yeah.
1: It's a very different proposition for the Australian property market, isn't it? I mean, we're seeing affordability challenges everywhere now. House prices are up in every city. Your offer at the moment is mostly in Melbourne. That's that's correct?
0: Yeah, it is at the moment, Yes, yeah. So we've got multiple projects in Melbourne. So we've got two in Kensington, one in Brunswick, another one in Murumbina, and one in Bentley and Clayton also. As of last week, we've just picked up a large site in Wollongabba in Brisbane. And one of, one of the stages of that project it will be done under this housing model also. And then we're looking to move into Adelaide this year as well. Um, and then ultimately we you know we've got a business plan to be in all the major capital cities nationally. You know, we've got support from our partners like Australia and Super now who are sort of happy for us to expand and give us the financial capacity to expand into you know, other locations, you know, probably a more rapid rate than we would have been able to just under our own steam.
1: Hmm. How are those uh, developments, I mean, firstly within Melbourne but also um, into different cities, how do they differ? Because, I mean, you've highlighted even within Melbourne such a diverse range of suburbs. I mean, there's a big difference between a, a Murrumbina and a Brunswick, for example, and then again Melbourne is different to Brisbane and then different to Adelaide in turn. So how do you make them different but similar enough to you know, be cohesive as a business but also to cater to the local market and the local renters and buyers? Yeah,
0: that's a good question. Um, what we do and the, the sort of buildings that we build and the sort of communal spaces and the like that we provide within those buildings, we think are you know, a bit sort of agnostic to location. So, so within our building, like the, the sort of housings, the housing to a certain extent, you know, sort of one-bedroom apartment, you know, is it sort of one-bedroom apartment, two bedrooms, three bedrooms, etc. you know, and there's sort of certain... Variances within that. But the sort of communal facilities, which is usually the way that people would respond to a market, they say, right, oh, well, you know, we're in Brisbane now, so all of a sudden we're doing pools where we don't do pools in Melbourne or, you know, or sort of whatever the sort of response to the local market is, is we sort of try to avoid those sort of geospecific responses. And the way in which we do that is we provide communal spaces and other facilities within the building that really try to replicate living in, you know, a home, you know, so whether that be a sort of Victorian cottage in, in Brunswick or, you know, a sort of detached house in the, in the sort of suburbs. And what I mean by that is we provide so that, you know, the dwelling is really good quality, two bedrooms, bathroom, cooking facilities, etc., etc. But, you know, you don't have a workshop. There's not somewhere to do messy jobs. You might not have a space in your home that's big enough to host a dinner party of sort of more than 10 people, for example. So in all the buildings we provide multifunction communal rooms. We've got work workshop spaces where you can do messy jobs that try to replicate the sort of shed out the back if you like so and we think those sort of facilities are sort of required whether or not you're in sort of Murrumbina or you know or Kensington or Brunswick for example so we don't think we sort of have absolute sort of direct responses to the location because we think the sort of things that we're providing are just sort of required you know sort of no matter where you are.
1: Mm. Can you tell us a little bit about the types of buyer that you're Targeting to in the types of buyers who are who are purchasing, I guess at the end of their rent journey with you. Yeah, of course.
0: Um, yeah, so they're sort of upper low into sort of middle income, you know, and they're people that are you know probably in really good long term jobs. They're just not sort of really high salary jobs, so but probably quite stable. You know, so they might be sort of health professionals or. Uh, emergency services personnel or baristas, for example, you know, sort of if you think that everyone's sort of going to want a good cup of coffee for years to come. So, um, so they're sort of in good sort of long-term stable industries but just not earning really high salaries. So, in Melbourne, for example, there might be people on salaries for an individual that are sort of, you know, in the sort of fifty to $60,000 range and then, you know, for a sort of family that might be in the ninety dollars to $120,000 sort of household income. So... And what we do is we look at the state government of Victoria publishes each year as governments in all jurisdictions nationally, data on what their definition of sort of a very low, low and middle income uh, household is for singles, couples and people with dependents. And we use that information to sort of help sort of sculpt our sort of rents and purchase prices, et cetera, to make sure that we're not selling an unrealistic dream for someone. So what the last thing I want is for someone that's on an income which is just unrealistic for them to be able to save enough money to be able to buy a home off us and qualify for a mortgage and things is to sell them into a sort of false hope that we're a sort of magical pathway to home ownership. So, what we do for each apartment in any one of our buildings is we say, look, from what we know today, you know, in in sort of May 2021, you know, you'd need to be about on this sort of household income to be able to do enough savings, still have a good quality of life over that seven years um, and then realistically sort of qualify for a mortgage at the end to be actually able to buy buy your home.
1: It sounds like there's some similarities to the sort of the build to rent model that everyone has been talking about. And we've seen a lot of success or take up of in places like London, for example. But I guess the key difference is that at the end of the rent, you get to purchase. Is that sort of one of the main differences to to build to rent?
0: Yeah, look, it is. And I guess it's a bit of a hybrid model in some ways. So you've really got that Build to rent period, which is where we own the entire building and we've got on-site staff providing services to that community during that period. But then ultimately, the exit pathway for you know the investors like Australian Super who are supporting this model is via sort of strata title and sell-down of the individual apartments rather than selling the entire building in one line, which would be more the sort of build to rent model. So separately, you know we've got a we've got a large pipeline of pure build to rent projects that will never be strata titled and sort of owned in one line in perpetuity but at the moment we're sort of very focused on this model because we see it as a pretty sort of bespoke response to the Australian dream of home ownership as well to say well you know we're you know we're sort of happy to rent for a while but ultimately it'd be great to be able to sort of stay in the building and actually own our apartment so we think it's quite a neat response to that desire as well. Mm.
1: And just finally, like where do you see Semble in five years time? I mean, you mentioned some potential for expansion into other capital cities, but what would you hope to be able to take from the last few years to apply into where you sit in five years time?
0: Yeah, cool. Uh, well, it's, you know, it's sort of it's quite cute really. We've actually got sort of groups in other cities that are sort of, you know, sort of lobbying us sort or of petitioning us to come and, and do some projects, um, you know, in their home home turf. So, so it's nice. So, we'll definitely be in most states in Australia. So, we've got a sort of investment pacing model that we've built that sort of says we're going to sort of have this proportion of our housing in Melbourne, you know, Sydney, Brisbane, Canberra, et cetera, et cetera. So, we'll be a, a sort of national business. Business, and we'll be sort of continuing to provide the home ownership pathway model into the market. We'll also have a, a sort of large proportion of our housing as affordable built to rent So all our built to rent projects have one in five dwellings for sort of social housing type rents. So it's a big part of our, our business as well is to be quite sort of impactful in that space. You know, and ultimately over that period, you know, we'd like, we've would like got a committed pipeline of about 5,500 dwellings nationally at the moment. You know, we'd probably like to be at least doubly that over the next five year period and hopefully in five years you know we'll have sort of four to five thousand dwellings you know happily sort of housing you know a whole bunch of variety of tenants and people that might go on to ownership with us etc so yeah it's really exciting future
1: yeah absolutely best of luck chris it'll be really interesting to see where assemble continues from thanks so much for joining us on property
0: unpacked today thanks for having me adrian
1: It was a bit of a mixed bag for property and housing in the federal budget last week. The first homeowner super saver scheme has been extended and there's incentives for single parents and downsizers. Critics, though, say it's too heavy on demand and far too light on supply. To get into the detail of what was announced and what it will mean for the market, we're joined now by Domain reporter Kate Burke and Domain Deputy News Editor Elizabeth Redman who've pored over the budget papers. Welcome to both of you.
2: Thanks for having us. Lovely to be here again.
1: <laughs> so, Kate, talk to us about home builder. It's been reasonably popular as a policy, but it's not a forever thing.
2: Yeah, so HomeBuilder is really where a large chunk of government spending on housing is going at the moment. We've seen more than 120,000 people having applied for the grant, which of course was giving out offers of up to $25,000 for a new build or renovation. And we saw that launched last year amid the pandemic to help support the construction industry. So basically they've seen up to four times more people take up the grants than they were expecting. And that level of demand prompted the government to extend the window in which people had to start their construction. It was originally six months that they had to, to get work started and that's been extended to 18 months. And the budget noted that that should see a bit more of a levelling in the, in the rollout of that construction activity. Now HomeBuilder is expected to unleash $30 billion in residential construction activity. But the budget did warn that that activity, as well as the strong run that we have been seeing in the property market in terms of rapid price growth, they're not expecting that to last and that we could even start to see dwelling investment fall from as early as next financial year. Because what Home Builder has done by giving out that incentive to for people to get work started sooner rather than later, it's brought forward a lot of that construction activity that we might have seen, you know, next year or the year after. So, the government is, it is on the government's radar that because home builder has brought forward that amount of activity that we could start to see things slow down um, in the coming years once those
1: HomeBuilder grants have worked their way through the system. And it's interesting too because HomeBuilder really was pitched as a construction boost at a time when there was some difficulty in getting a lot of construction stimulus. But there's been some interesting discussion, which we will get to later on, about whether there could be more effective construction stimulus. And interesting that there's some forecasts about even house price growth starting to Slow down over the next little while.
2: Yeah, so it was really interesting to see in this year's budget that the government did note that they're not expecting those rapid price gains that we've seen across the country to continue. We've got borders shut, so obviously we don't have the demand from new arrivals coming to the country. And they also noted, particularly for the apartment market, that we are seeing a change in what people want in homes, and that we don't know what long term impact the pandemic and the rise of remote working could have. They noted more people are looking to those homes in middle and outer ring suburbs and regional Australia, and that could weaken demand for the apartment sector, and that pullback in demand in turn could soften the amount of construction activity we are seeing for units across our biggest cities.
1: And home builder was one of the big factors in the budget, wasn't it, Elizabeth? But the first home super saver changes are also a bit of a signature policy, I guess you could say now, of Josh Frydenberg's.
3: Absolutely. And something that um, the government has really emphasised over the last few days is um, how much they value the idea of home ownership um, and how much they want to expand home ownership to people who um, aspire to own their own homes. Um, because obviously, you know, over time, home ownership in Australia has been falling um, as uh, house prices have risen um, over the past several years. And so, this is something that there's been quite a lot of focus on. One of the ways that they've gone about doing that is by um, expanding the first home super saver scheme. Basically, the idea of that is that it helps people to save more money to buy their first house, and so that's kind of very much in keeping with this idea of aspiration or kind of you know work and sacrifice and and being able to save more towards a home. The scheme has been expanded to fifty thousand dollars. It was previously thirty thousand, and the way that it works is that rather than getting paid and saving your money into a bank account, you save that money into your superannuation account. Now, you might think, what's the difference, right? You know, Why, why would I bother putting it in one account rather than other? And that reason is that um, the money that goes into your super account, you don't pay very much tax on, whereas the money that your employer pays you into your bank account, you pay more tax on basically. So for most people on average incomes, they would, uh, if they get paid $100 into their super account, they'd pay 15% tax. So they've got $85 of their own money. But if that same person is paid $100 in salary just into their regular bank account, they'd pay 34.5% tax. And so that means that they only keep $65.50 of their own money. So basically by moving that money into the super account rather than the bank account, somebody is $19.50 better off for every $100 that they're paid. And so over time, if someone is able to take full advantage of this, you know, save the full 50 grand, you know, maybe over five years, rather than even if they put it in, you know, a bank account with a great interest rate of which there's not very many at the moment, they'd be more than $10,000 better off, according to some modeling by CanStar, the financial comparison platform. So effectively, if someone kind of has a savings plan, you know, knuckles down, really takes advantage of this, they get an extra $10,000 in cash in this tax break from the government and then they can apply to take it out and to buy a home.
1: Okay, so there's there's a bit there to work through and it sounds like you'd have to fit a pretty firm set of criteria. Kate, the government has also brought in a, a slightly similar policy to an extent There's an ability for single parents to call on the government for assistance to buy a first home as well.
2: Yeah, so they've brought in this measure called the Family Home Guarantee. It's sort of similar to what we saw rolled out last year in terms of the first home loan deposit scheme. And so what it will allow up to 10,000 single parents to do is they'll be able to borrow with a deposit as low as 2% with the government going guarantor on the loan, thereby allowing them to avoid paying lender's mortgage insurance. And so from the 1st of July this year, we'll see those 10,000 guarantees start to be rolled out over four years and be eligible to single parents with dependents who want to build a new home or purchase an existing home. And they don't actually have to be first home buyers for for this scheme. They can have previously owned a home as well. But where the first home loan deposit scheme is limited to those with a deposit of at least 5%, this will be eligible to those who only have a 2% deposit, of course, subject to an individual's ability to service a loan. But yes, yeah, so it will be interesting to see how many single parents do look to take that up. When you are borrowing with a deposit as low as 2%, you're obviously borrowing quite a lot more money. If they were to be, say, buying a property at the, at the $700,000 mark which is where in Sydney at least the first home loan deposit scheme is capped at, they would only need a deposit of $14,000. So they're going to be borrowing almost the full amount and as Elizabeth already referenced even with sort of the the low rates that we are seeing at the moment from the banks, even at that like your average standard variable rate you're going to be paying over $3,000 a month in repayments. So how many single parents can afford that? Not sure, but um, it will be interesting to see what the take-up of this uh, guarantee is like.
1: It seems that there's going to be a lot more to come in property or at least those who are looking for some solutions, potentially from the state budgets that are also due out over the, the rest of the year. It does seem like some of the discussions are a bit circular of politically with housing at the moment. Would you agree? Sure. I think something that
3: a lot of people in the industry, you know, so especially developers, something they've said for a long time is, you know, we need different levels of government to work together. We need everyone to work together. Housing affordability is an issue that affects everyone. We need to have, you know, federal, state, local governments and private developers and the, you know, community housing sector all working together um, and all kind of working towards the same goal and that's how we can move the needle on this. So so one example of that could be, you know, in terms of upcoming state budgets in New South Wales, um, there's been this big push for, you know, what if we kind of took the opportunity to make some bold reforms and um, reform stamp duty? Stamp duty is a tax that can discourage people from moving home when it would be a good time for them to move home because they know that they'll have to pay, you know, a huge stamp duty bill on whatever they buy. And they've said, great, what if we had, you know, Land tax, it'd be smaller. You'd pay it every year over a long period of time and maybe that would um, you know, help people move around more, right? But New South Wales has kind of been going it alone on that. Victoria looked at it and said, we're not going to do it. Now we are going to give you a temporary stamp duty discount to try and encourage you to buy a home, you know, amid the pandemic. But there would be, you know, a great chance for I think different levels of government to say, hey, let's work together on this. You know, what if what if national cabinet got together and said, you know, let's work on stamp duty, let's do that in a coordinated way rather than different levels saying that's up to you or up to you. What if there was um, some way that we could do that together? I think that that would be a real opportunity for buyers and sellers.
1: So much more potential, I think, from the the housing sector that, you know, we all hope that there might be some solutions on in future. Thank you so much both for uh, joining us this week on Property Unpacked. Thanks Thanks for having us. us.
0: This podcast is brought to you by Belong, winner of Money Magazine's Best Value NBN Plan for the second year running.
1: You've been listening to Property Unpacked, a podcast by Domain. If you like what you've heard, subscribe and take a look at our previous episodes. Our producer is Hayley Cools with editing and mixing by Dan McHugh. For more property news, advice and market insights, head to domain.com.au or download the Domain app. Thanks for listening. Talk to you soon.